Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Newman. I'm Professor of Space Law and Policy at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. I'm also International Space Law Advisor for Cold Star Technologies. I listen to the Cold Star Project. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Gannigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization, or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. So, Narian Prasad, uh, who I have found to be a, a great guy, is on the show today, and I want him on because... He really understands business, and that's a rarity out there in the engineering-minded, uh, focused folks of the space industry. You really have to get your head on straight. It's not just about building things. That's great, you know, but you have to have a customer, and you have to make money. If you don't make money, your business will not survive, okay? And Narian here has been involved with the space industry for a long time, maybe 15 years. Uh, he's... Boy, he's got a lot of degrees. <laughs> he's got a couple of three master's degrees here. Wow. Uh, astronomy and astrophysics, space science and tech, uh, you know, wizardry. Uh, he's got a PhD, which I, or a doctorate. The, the Germans have this different designation for it, but uh, it's, it's his doctorate is in supply chain management. I did not know that, Narian, so. <laughs> That's awesome that uh, you kind of got into the, the OPEX side of things a little bit. Uh, he has been a volunteer for the Space Generation Advisory Council, which I see everywhere, and uh, something called uh, SCDS uh, India. And he's been an Associate Research Fellow for the European Space Policy Institute. Narian really understands business, and he has had to learn it the hard way as the Chief Operations Officer of SatSearch, and SatSearch is, uh, is kind of a software uh, as a service, but he's got a different approach to it because Narian and his partners, uh, and Narian arrived uh, after the prototype had been created, kind of found out that what you think is going to happen when you arrive in the marketplace with a service isn't always what does happen. People view your your uh, results or your products or your service in a different way than you did. <laughs> and a lot of founders haven't learned this lesson. Uh, I've struggled with it from time to time in different businesses. You know, you show up and you're like, you know, I get it. I understand it. Why don't you? Right. And so in order to uh, provide value, maximum value to the marketplace and make money and stay alive and grow, remember, that's the purpose here. Uh, it's great to make stuff for the space industry, but if you don't have cash flow, you're going to die. And... <laughs> That isn't going to work out for anybody. You can't serve anybody if your business is dead. So, Narian has a really great perspective on what running a commercial operation is like in the commercial space industry. So, Narian, let's get into it and share some of your knowledge and what you found out with uh, our listeners and viewers today. Welcome. So, Narian, I uh, appreciate you being back here. We've talked quite a bit off camera. I keep seeing you at Michael Mealing's uh, space uh industry venture capital hours and that's great it's uh you know i started off talking with karthik kumar uh maybe even a year and a half two years ago now and uh, and then got to know you as well um sat search has really been um 
interesting to watch, right? It, it's, it's not the only company in the field that's kind of doing the database thing, but having talked to you privately, uh, and maybe we'll get into that today, your positioning has been, your choices of positioning have been quite different than uh, other options that I've seen out there. And I find that great because <laughs> I'm a high ticket guy, right? I would rather sell something for $4,000 instead of $400, right? If I could figure out a way to do it. Um, what I have found um, with starting with price is really important in, in my world, right? I don't begin with the customer so much or the avatar. I begin with price and then I build a service uh, around that. And of course, the avatar has to actually be out there. They do have to exist. You can't just create a unicorn <laughs> avatar, right? And, uh, and will them into existence. But I'll bet you, if you could provide the uh, the value and the understanding of uh, what you're bringing to the table and expand their mind a little bit, you can get uh, higher fees or higher rates, higher investment because you're solving a, a perceptively bigger problem. So we're going to kind of go through some questions that we've got down here about the process of you putting sat search together uh, with with your friends and what that was like. Let's begin with this. What led you to founding sat search? Right. Again, thank you very much, uh, Jason, for inviting me. I've been uh, learning a lot uh, through your podcast as well. So I've watched uh, multiple episodes and have learned uh, quite a lot. And it's also very refreshing to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about when it comes to sales process and everything else and a lot to learn from, right? So I really appreciate that in that sense. And the story behind Satsurj um, is also interesting because um, the project actually started six years ago, 2015, um, around the same time, April, May, when yeah. there was a hackathon being put together in Bremen, in the city of Bremen in Germany by a few friends of ours. And the goal was very simple. So they said, here's a bunch of space geeks or both from the space industry and outside the space industry. And you know, you have 48 hours to build something to see if you could then see that as a great idea. And if people thought that was a great idea and eventually would that turn into a company of, that, of sorts, right? And Karthik uh, and Alberto were also there. And at that time, I was not there at the hackathon itself. I joined SatSearch uh, much later at, at a, after a year. And the problem that was very simple that every engineer faced or even faces today is knowledge about supply chains, right? And the amount of time that people have to spend with suppliers to really get all the kind of information. So, I mean, for me, there is no proper evidence that anybody can put into place that says these are the number of suppliers that actually are active in the space industry, right? And even if you take a mature space industry like the US, it's very hard to count what is a space company and what is a non-space company, right? Because most often I'll be talking to some supplier and they'll just be telling me, oh, we just produce like batteries for space and that's 10% of our business. Mm. Do you consider that as a space company or not, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So while you have your Lockheeds and you know Boeings and others and out there, but the elongated space value chain is much, much bigger. And for us, the knowledge of supply chains in the space industry is the knowledge of auto industry a hundred years ago. You had a thousand different auto industry brands that wanted to become the Mercedes of the world today. 
and they were building their own cars in every single part of the world and they had their own supply chains they had own, own vendors and parts and so on so the question is you know will the space industry become as mature as the auto industry and big become as big so if you are like a believer that space is going to be commercial you have to believe that supply chains are also going to be global right so and for us you know on the engineering side it's as simple as how long does an engineer spend time to do all the non-engineering work, which is getting in contact with the right suppliers, knowing which supplier you know, produces what, what are their capabilities, if they have space heritage, how much is the price of their component, can they actually export you, uh, can, is their product actually space proven, all of these things, right? So these are very difficult questions for a new entrant, a new engineer in the space industry. And it's also a tough question to keep track of for experienced engineers, because experienced engineers know people who they have worked with or their organizations have worked with before, but they may not know what is going on in other places, right? So if you talk to like engineers in the US and ask them, you know, tell me like 10 suppliers in Europe that you know about who are producing something, they'll just say, I have no clue what is happening on the other side of the pond, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea behind SatSearch was as simple as we are, as engineers are struggling to collect all the information that we want. And we like to do only the engineering bit where if somebody else is going to take care of getting us all the information that we want, we're simply happy to take all that information and make the engineering decision or make the financial decision to choose something uh, once there's an engineering fit to it. Right. And unfortunately, when you're looking at the design of a mission, a new mission or so on, more than 50% of the time at the early stage is dedicated by engineers. Their engineering time goes into all of this non-engineering work, right? And so on one side, we have these engineers who are benefiting from a database or a collection of information that they can access possibly for free that they will save a lot of time and effort in that sense. And that was always the idea. And the hackathon was basically a demo of us building that search engine and showing that something like this can be built. Now the question of, will this be a successful company? Will this be a company at all? Will this go beyond a project that is beyond 24 or 48 hours? Or you know, will this actually turn into something that people will pay for at the end is, something that we discovered over the course of years. Right, and you had to survive through that period too, right? Uh, it's <laughs> this message to market fit stuff, this business model stuff doesn't just appear out of nowhere. Uh, and it's often not obvious, like who's your customer here? Um, many people, myself included, uh, before talking to you and, and getting to know the business a little better, would think that it's a two-sided business model, right? I've got the engineers looking for information on this side, and I've got product makers wanting to promote their services on the other. But it turns out the reality is one of these guys ain't going to pay for it. <laughs> so tell us about the, the process and maybe some of the frustrations even of finding that out and, and how you solved that problem, what you did about it. Right. You know, one of the things that we kind of struggled with, I think, is um, we had a Jason missing in our team, for example, right? We actually did not have somebody who understands how do you actually build process? How do you actually sell stuff? How do you actually model stuff that you're putting a monetary value to a problem and then 
you know who the customer is at the end, right? So that was a very difficult process for us to go through at the end as well. And initially, you know, it really began by just us asking our engineering friends or engineers around a dinner table, we're building this, how much will you be able to, are you, are you willing to pay for it, right? Because we are saving engineering time for you, mm. right? And you would hear some really bizarre reactions uh, because, you know, engineers don't like these kinds of questions about how much will somebody pay for all of this thing? Mm. And I still remember we were having this dinner in Bremen and we asked a bunch of engineers, I mean, we're building this, you know, what do you think is the size of the problem that we are solving to you? And how much do you think, uh, you know, you would be able to pay us um, a month? And somebody said, we'll pay you 10 bucks a month. If you solve this problem for us, right. I was like, okay, this doesn't really work out to be a business in that case. <laughs> We'd be better off doing something else at the end, right? So it was very clear to us at that point of time that you cannot ask engineers to pay for this problem. Uh, although it is a problem that's, that engineers face, mm -hmm. they'll always tell that we have all the time in the world. We'll just, <laughs> you know, extend the project timeline or we'll budget our engineering time and we will, you know, budget this into our uh, whatever time that we, that goes into engineering, right? So it's a, almost like a hidden cost that mm -hmm. goes into the financial uh, projections that a company has on the projects and so on, right? And it's also very hard to say how you actually can monetize it. Will this be a subscription that engineers have to pay individually or will this be something that an organization has to pay where 500 engineers are paying 10 bucks a month? Maybe at that point of time, it does make sense because you then have you know, big enough float where you're handing out licenses at the end. But then you know, that's again a complicated sell because in not not in uh, in every organization, not everybody is designing a space mission. There's somebody who is actually producing it or putting it together or servicing customers or you know selling stuff or so on, right? So the amount of people who are actually putting in um, the engineering time in actually design of a space mission is actually you know small number of people in an organization, probably 10, 15 percent of the people who are really focused on that bit, right? So it was very clear from all of those fronts that engineers are not our customers at the end, right? And it's often a case with many, many of these uh, portals like us where we had a look like Octopart, for example, right? It solves problems for engineers to look up electronic parts, for example, mm. right? And so in all of these cases, the engineer or the user always gets to use the platform for free because that's the lowest barrier of entry that you can create for these people to then use the platform mm -hmm. and invite them. And you can, you know, create very happy experiences for them to then have them come back and also spread the word about, right? And so the model philosophy that we then had to look for is whose problem are we solving and how big of a problem are we solving? And this is where, you know, the conversation gets interesting because in the legacy world of space missions, governments are the biggest stakeholders and governments don't procure through a marketplace or they don't procure like the way commercial companies would procure. Mm. They don't shop the way people buy cars, right? So in that world, the marketplace has no meaning to it unless and until there's some level of IP based, um, you know, monetization or you know, taking the IP and creating a marketplace for the IP itself in some way or the other, right? So which means that the phenomena that SatSearch kind of rode on was 50 or 60 new countries saying we are doing space missions now. 
in the last 15 or 20 years or in the last 10 years at least mm. and then you know then the supply chain on the demand side becoming open more and more right so you know today we have engineers from indonesia thailand you know uh, south korea or uh, south africa or egypt or algeria using us and who would imagine that you know all of these countries will be doing space missions to the level that they are doing and of course you know they don't know supply chains in the us or europe or wherever in that sense as well right so it was very clear to us that we are kind of riding on that wave of new missions opening up new commercial companies opening up and a lot of people stepping into space in new countries and their knowledge of space being very very little as well right and so that is from the user side of things and on the supplier side of things is also very interesting because at the end of the day if you are a us supplier who has 30 years or 40 years of legacy of supplying to dod nasa whatever missions xyz out there your knowledge of the us industry is very detailed you we will never be able to beat you in your knowledge and your connections in the us that is very clear to us right but then your knowledge of some guy in south africa building a space mission is almost zero right and it is very expensive for us sales people to travel to south africa spend time there to an uncertain business opportunity to then say i'm going to spend thousands of dollars to see if i can get a few thousand dollars in orders or contracts and it doesn't make any sense for any organization in the us to invest that kind of money to see if there's business there it makes sense if south africa says i have 100 million dollars in budgets that i've declared that i'm going to procuring first and then you know somebody at lockheed or wherever can then say i want a person dedicated to building this business up in south africa because they have 100 million dollars out there right so and that's where the platform gets really interesting because at the end of the day if i can tell a supplier in the us i have an engineer that i know of or we are helping discovering the the supply chain and we're helping them figure out their you know the entire technology infrastructure that they need to put in place in terms of suppliers and so on capabilities and i can tell the person that here's an opportunity that you will get to bid on because of us purely because of us it wouldn't have been in place without us in that sense there may be a possibility that people might have googled you and found you maybe but not every person in the world is googleable in the space industry uh, not every supplier is built to be able to google and not in fact many of the us suppliers don't even broadcast their capabilities rightly on their own website in that sense right because they are mm -hmm. integrated into the you know government procurement chain and you know they're answering tenders and they're you know doing all of this behind closed doors and they don't need to broadcast anything on the internet as such right so this is where you know we saw that we were creating opportunities because when you help a transaction happen right you learn from the transaction right and so when we helped an engineer from south africa you know want to select a supplier for a camera for example right and then we did the you know work back then because we knew with our own experiences that these are the some of the camera manufacturers that they can talk to and we helped those camera manufacturers talk to this guy in that one transaction we actually learned a lot about the process that suppliers follow the process that engineers follow 
and looked at what actually makes sense in the marketplace to actually do all of this, right? So, and then the goal, the end benefit that we saw was very clear that suppliers are benefiting out of our platform because they are able to bid on opportunities that they would never be able to bid on. Mm-hmm. And we're actually reducing the cost of their business development, uh, reducing the amount of time that they need to in sourcing leads for them. Uh, we can't help them close anything because it's dependent on their you know, quality, on their price, on their lead time, on their heritage and many other things. But we can definitely help them source certain leads that are very critical, right? And so what will you pay to sell a camera that is a million dollars to somebody out in Africa or Asia or wherever in terms of business costs, what is the cost for you to procure such a lead? And what is the cost for you to actually close such a lead? And that's the interesting debate and the conversation. And for us, you know, the value is in capturing that. And the value is in convincing suppliers that they need to pay to get access to that, right? And so that's the journey that we've been kind of taking care of in the last like three or four years where we've learned a lot of these elements and we've learned a lot of these kinds of foundation fundamentals and we've had to educate suppliers on a lot of these things as to rewire their brains to think about you know internet as a possibility of them getting actually leads all the time as well right well just a great number of, of valuable observations there in area and uh not assuming you know why people would use the thing <laughs> you're creating right finding out from their own experience what their process is right what is what is the engineering buying process like right it's it's one thing to walk into a situation and imagine you know <laughs> it's another thing to get the real feedback from interacting with the industry um I see some parallels here with Airbnb. Uh, Airbnb doesn't, to my knowledge, charge the users, right? The, the regular people coming and looking for a place to stay. Uh, they, and they, they, they remove that barrier to entry on usage, as you have with the engineers, right? Uh, it's more important for you guys to get in here and demonstrate that you have need, right? Uh, that's the pull, I guess, kind of, right? And then the the supplier is a magnet (laughs) pulling that in uh, can show up there. And you're thinking about cost of customer acquisition, cost per lead. These are very important numbers, folks, very important numbers in in commercial business, cost of customer acquisition, right? A lot of founders, and I guess from what I'm hearing from you, and I've been around engineers for years, but I haven't really thought about it the way that you're describing it, right? The engineers believing, oh, we'll just extend the project time. Well, you might miss your launch date if you do that, but... uh, (laughs) or other pressures, right? Um, But the idea that, oh, my time, I've got plenty of time. Uh, My time is not worth that much, right? I know so many founders in so many industries that act as if their time is worth zero, zero dollars an hour, right? And that's a huge mistake. The reality is their cost of customer acquisition is in the thousands of dollars, because if even if they're only worth $100 an hour, quote unquote, uh, and I bet as a founder, you're worth more than that. Um, it's going to take you 10 hours to land a customer or more, right? And that's $1,000 right there. And if you're selling something for $500 because you don't understand costing and you don't know or have estimated your cost of customer acquisition, you're going to lose money. (laughs) Just because you spent time on it doesn't mean that it costs nothing. 
Uh, and and now, now I'm wondering, from what you've been saying, whether the whether the the deeper issue with the engineers is uh, them feeling like they're maintaining control of that search process, right? I I don't know <laughs> for sure, but I, there's something going on there about we we want to keep control of this, and we don't. Uh, you know, we don't want to give that up because surely engineers are smart people like like many other people and they can do math, right? And they know their hourly rate and they know how long it takes them to find something and they can figure out for themselves if it's faster to get sat search to serve stuff up to us than it is for me to individually go out there uh, and, and poke around and try and find something. Why wouldn't you pay for that service? So there's some emotional barrier going on there. Uh, that I think is maybe worth exploring. I don't know, because you've, you've got a good model where you are bringing opportunities to suppliers that, like you say, they wouldn't know about. Um, and uh, Yeah, just as a segue there, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Jason, actually my wife is a space engineer as well. Uh, she does a lot of um, avionics design and, mm -hmm. and development for satellites, and she's been doing it for a long time now as well. And I was having a conversation with her and... Actually, in that conversation, I got to know that she actually doesn't know what is her hourly rate as an engineer. Uh, okay. So because huh. you know the way that engineers think are are that way, right? Because nobody thinks about oh, I'm going to be earning twenty bucks a month, uh, an hour because I'm doing this mission design exercise here, right? Um, and and so for me, that was fundamentally like striking because at the end of the day, oh. uh, engineers just report to their managers saying that we hmm. had to do the straight study. Unfortunately, the suppliers are not replying to us in three weeks, right. or we need to get this paperwork done. Uh, we need to sign this NDA document. Uh, and then, you know, the, the buck gets just passed on to the other department, right? So then they say, huh. oh, our legal department needs to handle this, and they'll take two weeks uh, for us to sign off this thing. And then the engineer just says, okay, now the, you know, I just need to wait because there's a legal department that has to review this document for two weeks. And, you know, my bosses need to sign this NDA document before I actually get a CAD design for some screw or part or whatever it is, right? So, so the, there's a lot of go with the flow kind yeah. of thing that engineers do. It's not really wired towards thinking about my time costs so much. Mm. It's about, I need to accomplish this technical capability or this technical knowledge. And that is taught in, uh, or, or that is taught in terms of time, but it is not taught in terms of time value of money. Right. Yeah. I, I've talked to other folks who, who have told me um, similar things that, that the valuing uh, of their own time and that just isn't well understood out there. Uh, and I'm remembering our, our engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, telling me, he's told me on a couple of occasions, uh, trying to, he is trying to reach out to suppliers to get technical and pricing information. And there's just no answer. And so a service like yours can speed up this learning process, this advisement process, right? Of what's available, how much it costs and that uh, so much. So <laughs> I, I think every engineer ought to, uh, to get a hold of it. And um, fortunately it doesn't cost them anything right now. So let's move on to this. Um, you know, I had you on a, a founder workshop for space and defense industry startups. Um, where I had a couple of venture capitalists and then I was talking to you and I realized, oh, wow, Narian's got a lot to contribute here uh, to talk to these startup founders about what commercial success looks like, what it actually takes, because you need this mental 
picture in your head to move towards to. If you don't have the mental picture of the target, you're just going to veer all over the place and, and all these herky-jerk motions and you're never quite sure you know whether you're moving in the right direction or not and so <laughs> a couple of things you said uh you know first startled me i agreed with them but i was like whoa <laughs> you know um and and so like one of the things that you mentioned was partnership announcements don't mean much at all right we see these announcements xyz company is partnering with hjk number company and and like there's some sort of background interpretation that now everything's going to be sunshine and roses and we're all going to be making money. What kind of um, things have you seen in, in reality in the industry that you would like to call out as like, well, th these things aren't exactly what they appear to be or as valuable as they may look? Yeah, I think um, in the startup world, partnerships make sense when you are like a big company, right? So mm. I am Microsoft and I'm partnering with somebody Google or whatever it is, Amazon or something like that to do something where I have a lot of resources that I bring. The other person brings in a lot of resources and then says, for me to create this resource that we are bringing in, it'll cost me $10 billion to, to do this. I would rather just partner to like work with you in that sense, right? Mm. The startups, I mean, in the startup world, startups have nothing. They have zero on the table. So you can bring zero from your side and then zero on the other side. And then they say, we will multiply a zero and zero and create two zeros at the end as partnerships. So this is also the reason why, you know, we don't really have any kind of partnerships at the end, right? So this is a hard lesson that we've learned because partnerships in startup world means that you don't know how to monetize. Mm -hmm. You're going you're gonna to hand out something for free to someone. Uh, expecting something back in return for free at the end. Um, and so it's great for LinkedIn updates, mm -hmm. Twitter, social media, Facebook, uh, and so on to, to say that, oh, we have partnered with somebody to get something out. But if the mm -hmm. partnership actually doesn't have like a dollar value uh, signed off on it, mm -hmm. I mean, it could be a partnership um, where somebody agrees to pay you a certain amount of money that you don't need to say uh, in the announcement, mm -hmm. uh, that would be great as well because that's a sale at the end. Because if somebody tells me, oh, if you guys at SatSearch um, have 100,000 users a month, uh, I will pay you $10 million a month mm -hmm. uh, to be on your platform, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that's the agreement that we've come to in our partnership as such, right? Um, I'm happy to sign off that and saying that we've partnered with this company because uh, I know that in one year's time, I will reach 100,000 users and this guy is going to pay me a, a $10 million a, a month to be on, our, on my platform, right? So I think partnerships, um, if they are having this dollar value attached to it, if not today, at least tomorrow, and there's very concrete timelines and very concrete agreements on what is the price that somebody is actually mm -hmm. going to pay, and there is a kind of a legally binding stuff in some fashion or the other, some kind of contractual agreement that binds them. Um, it, it may work in that sense. But if it's like a promissory note that um, I'm going to, you know, send some emails to you and you're going to send some emails back to me and we're going to exchange some notes and publish a press release that we're going to be working on something. I think then uh, that's why that's actually time lost mm. uh, at the end because uh, you're kind of wasting all the time between doing a partnership and doing all the press releases and you know wasting all the time between here and there so this is also the reason why you will never see us saying um we've partnered with somebody
Okay. And I, I like that because folks, what we want to do is, is avoid the illusion of activity, right? We want progress. <laughs> that means real action, impactful action, not just the illusion of activity. I've seen this in the coaching world, especially uh, with, with bartering. Coach A says, I'll trade services with Coach B and, you know, I'll do my thing, you do your thing. Uh, and the commitment levels are in the basement, you know, they're, they're terrible on these things, right? And so when I see a situation like that, I tell the people what I recommend they do is actually pay each other for the, for the service as it is. Even if it's, I pay you the money and you pay it right back to me, uh, that, that that movement of money in that transaction will make it more meaningful for you. Okay, huh. here's, here's a fun one. <laughs> Let's get into this. What, what are some errors that you consistently see startup founders making? Mm, I think uh, from what I see at this point of time, I think um, most people, I think, assume quite a lot. Um, and also, you can assume quite a lot, but I think if you are not able to uh, make a financial model and then attach the size of the problem and the, and the cost of the solution to it. Uh, that's, I think, a very, very difficult thing. And also, I think people sometimes are also building solutions that for customers that may be 10 years from now. Mm. You know, like somebody saying, I'm going to be building, um, you know, a lunar base for some lunar tourists you know, people want to go on the moon and uh, try to have a lunar tourism service from now. I mean, I'm all for it, right? It might happen at some point of time, uh, but you have to sustain like 10 or 20 years before you actually, you know, have somebody actually subscribe to that kind of a service. You might have some billionaires give you, you know, whatever, 100 million to, as a promissory note for it, because you can't achieve much with that money to build a lunar base as well, right? So, uh, I mean, for us, I think we are lucky to be doing something in software mm -hmm. because uh, we our, our cost of experimenting is very, very low, mm -hmm. right? So we build something and then we ship it and then we know if something works or not. But even in our case, we need to know what to build, right? Because we can build some feature that takes two years to ship. Mm -hmm. And then you figure out that this feature is completely useless <laughs> to both suppliers it. and engineers, right? And then they say, um, why did we actually spend two years, you know, building this thing? Because at the end of the day, we are very limited in our own, um, you know, human resources, right? At the end. So I think the most basic problem I think is, that I see is that people have like the big vision mm -hmm. and distilling like the big vision to small steps that you do on a daily basis and then putting a dollar value to that to be monetized like yesterday is actually three different things that you need to accomplish to survive um, as a non-venture-backed company mm -hmm. or you know or so on, right? So you are not really, you've not really sold a dream to somebody saying that I'm going to be building this and I have three years of cash in the bank to spend this to build up uh, the whole thing, right? So we don't come from that world or we've not come from that world. So we had to build something that we could sell yesterday um, that we're building today right. so that we can survive tomorrow. 
Right. And folks, I'm, I've been working in the software as a service field for many, many years. People build stuff, features that aren't useful all the time. <laughs> they get talked into it uh, by one or two very loud customers, maybe, or a lot of it is just the founder thinking and right, having a brainwave. Um, and we see this all the time with SaaS. Uh, the whole thing, not even just a feature, but the whole idea was a brainwave that the founder had and they went and built a, a minimum viable product only then to ask, well, does, any, does anybody want this? Will anyone pay for this? Does this solve a problem that's worth paying for? Um, one of the things that, that I get frustrated about with startup founders is uh, the shopping around of the venture capitalist slide deck from VC to VC. And then these poor folks, these, these poor founders are exhausting themselves doing this uh, because they never went out and figured out whether the market was going to pay for something, right? Um, and you don't even need to make a sale. You probably should. But getting testimonials or, or quotations from people, right, uh, written down or video, of, of somebody saying, yes, if this product gets made or this solution gets made, I'm going to buy it. The fact of the matter is folks, with, with engineering, if somebody shows up and they say, I want X created and they've got barrels full of money, guess what? We'll, we'll find a solution. The engineers will come out and they'll get paid and they'll do the work, okay? The magic is not in the engineering so much, okay? The magic is in the vision and the, message to market match. What, what's your opinion about um, going for venture capital or going for investment before you've proven that business model out? The thing is, I never have uh, pitched any VC by myself. Uh, of course, you know, my <laughs> colleagues have. Uh, yeah. Karthik has tried to do that sometime, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, uh, you know, the question for me always has been that we actually are grounded very well with customers and Every business may not need venture capital to build out it as a company, right? Because the journey of every company may not involve external investors. Uh, it may just involve your own capital or your friend's capital or your family's capital, and that's about it, right? It may not need uh, venture capital mm -hmm. and, and so on, right? So, and for me, I think, uh, as a marketplace, it's also about figuring out your model and how do you actually scale up the marketplace? How do you create these two-sided effects? How do you create network effects that you want to do this? I mean, of course, if you're building like an Airbnb or so on, and there's evidence that a hundred people have booked rooms or houses or hotel rooms or whatever through your marketplace, there's enough evidence to then say there are a million hotels in the world. So uh, invest a hundred million in me and I'll reach a hundred uh, thousand hotels or whatever in that sense, right? So that isn't there as well. But, you know, for us, I think uh, given that uh, we've also been kind of frugal in our approach and have tried to build everything uh, ground up, the venture capital world, I think initially was very, very skeptical to what we were doing. Mm. Because at the end of the day, you know, they, um, they did ask us, okay, you're building all of these things, you know, how does this scale to like a billion dollar company, right? Every venture capital, you know, guy wants to know, how is it that uh, you will build a billion dollar uh, company out there? And, you know, the question may not be like, the, you, don't, you might not have the answer immediately for all of this, right? Because 
um, I might just say I'm happy doing, you know, three, four million dollars in business. If I have five people working with me, I still take a, you know, good check back home and I still get a pretty good return as an, uh, as an owner of a business at the end. And that's still, you know, fair enough for me. I'm happy taking uh, half a million dollars a, a home every year without any venture capitalist being on my cap table at the end, right? So I'm still happy doing that, right? So I think uh, what may have also saved our business to a certain extent hmm. is we did actually get a few offers from uh, venture capitalists as well. Yeah. What may have actually saved our business is not taking their money <laughs> at that stage. So because... I think what inevitably happens with venture capital is venture capitalists automatically set an expiry date to your business mm -hmm. because they need to kind of make their money back at the yeah. end because nobody wants to invest in any company that takes like more than five or seven years uh, from which they will take a return or they'll have an exit or so on, right? So, I mean, and the problem that we are solving is a long-term problem. It can, it may need more than seven years at the end to, uh, to achieve the scale that we want to achieve. And there, there is a pathway for us to also become a billion dollar company at the end. But the question is, is it possible to do that in five to seven years? Maybe not. Hmm. Is it possible to do it in 15 or 20 years? Maybe yes. Right. So we don't know yet. We are investigating that and we're seeing how the market reacts to what is going on. You know, what is, uh, the prices that we're going to be charging customers and what is the scale at which the platform is going to be used? What else are the revenue streams that we'll create uh, through mm -hmm. the platform and everything else, right? So there's so many of these uncertainties attached. But what might happen with venture capital is that people might just say, you have something working here that is scalable that you can replicate. You just need to add like three or four salespeople. You need to add three or four engineers. You need to add a couple of UX designers and you need to add a marketing person and you need to go attend like a hundred different trade shows and then say, you are on fire. So go ahead and meet uh, 10,000 suppliers this year and close a thousand suppliers and then make a million dollars and unhappy, right? But I don't know if the market is kind of ready for that or is it already ready? I mean, these are all the uncertainties that are out there as well, right? So... So we, uh, I would say we're not completely, we're not completely adverse to having venture capitalists uh, within Sat Church as an investment or so on, but it's a question of the timing as well. It's a, a question of you know, uh, freedom to to do more things and discover a lot more things. It's a question of you know finding the kind of right fit between who is investing and what is their thesis and what is your alignment to all of these things, right? So so far. We've had no venture capital uh, invest in Sat Search. We've, and also that's helped us being very grounded because mm. we know that we need to get paid next month and we need right. to play our employees next month. So we need to make enough money and charge our customers enough so that we can survive at the mm -hmm. end. So um, unless and until we've, you know, seen a clear path where putting like fuel on fire mode is possible to that mm -hmm. sense. Uh, maybe it's not worth taking it because there is customer pressure from us to, to deliver stuff. And there's financial pressure on us to keep the lights on while we keep adding you know, more and more employees as well. And, and so I think you know, somehow there is that balance as well. So that's something, you know, 
thankfully I'm not in charge in our company. So my colleague Karthik is uh, really <laughs> taking care of this financial modeling of the company and you know how the company scales and mm. what should we do with our uh, capital and what has to go on and so on. So I don't really need to worry about it in my function as such, but in my function, I'm really thinking about, you know, how do I get in more customers? How do I get in more users? How do we create great user experiences and all of these other things, right? So, and that's what I see for myself. And when I talk to potential customers or we, I talk to existing customers and so on, I'm trying to create a delightful kind of experience or create a dream for them to also join the platform at the end, right? So that's been the case for us. Okay. Yeah. So what, what I got out from, of what you just said, uh, most importantly, is that accepting venture capital uh, could, it brings risks. Um, and, and we know all these startup founders out there who have this assumption-based dream <laughs> that I will get venture capital and then everything will be you know, downhill from there in a good way, right? Everything will roll downhill from there and uh, it'll be easy. And that's just not true. Uh, it, you're saying accepting venture capital could well force you into pushing on a business model or a certain approach that may not be the right fit for you. Uh, and you may not have figured out what the business model really is supposed to be, what the best business model is. And so you're working against time because of that venture capital payback pressure to produce something at a certain valuation. Well, that doesn't sound like it's always going to be 100% in alignment with producing the best company or the best solution or the best uh, you know, product in response to what the customer actually needs. Right. And so yeah, and interesting, also, interesting. Yeah, and also I think um, I think a lot of the messaging in the world today has uh, been towards raising venture capital equals a successful company, mm, mm. which is not the case, right? right? So you can raise venture capital and fail kind of miserably and you have nothing at the end still, right? Yes. And in the, you even the investors don't have anything at the end and you also have nothing at the end you lose everything that you've kind of built at the end right so um you probably would have made more money working for someone at that point of right time. oh i know what uh, that feels like <laughs> right <laughs> yep been there <laughs> yep. so uh yeah so this is you know the reason why i think it's also um this the case and also strangely you also avoid people selling to you because mm. People know that, you know, we don't have a bunch of money that venture capitalists have given us today because mm -hmm. we've not may not made any announcements out there. So nobody's selling us anything at this point of time saying, uh, you know, uh, do this with this money or do that with this right. money or hire this right. thing or, or do that thing or something, right? So yeah, as soon as uh, you show up with a barrel of money or a bag of money, people show up wanting to get a slice of it <laughs> in exchange for whatever. Uh, is that good or bad? Who knows? Um, early on, I heard you say something, uh, we'll finish up with this, Narian, um, that, that reminded me of New Space Hub, um, in that New Space Hub, uh, they had to figure out, as you did, or, or maybe still are, what is a space company and what isn't, and they had to get, the, they used a team of volunteers, uh, I found out in that interview, you guys can go listen to that as well, uh, to to start getting that discernment and doing that filtering right of what is a real space company and what isn't how has the sat search platform evolved along the way right that's a very interesting big question and it's a very straightforward answer as well 
for us, the space company is a company that or whose capability and engineering request is requesting for. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So we've had uh, engineers requests for nuts and bolts. We've had engineers requests for thrusters. We've had engineers requests for cameras. We have had engineers requests for cloud solutions or mm -hmm. AI algorithms or machine learning stuff or you know uh, ground uh, ground services or it could be uh, for other things, right? So satellite data processing or so on, right? So the answer is very simple. Always look at the demand side. Mm -hmm. Because if there is demand and you can help the demand satisfy, you know, its need, then you know what is a space company or not. Um, and it's the same with materials. You know, some of the time we get a lot of uh, requests for like some kind of resins or, you know, uh, some kind of very unique materials and so on. So in, in that case, you know, uh, material companies are space companies at the end, right? So because there is demand for that material in some kind of a space mission at the end. So it's as simple as that. I think looking at it from a supplier standpoint uh, may not be true, may not be very right, uh, because every supplier believes that you know they are the best in the world. They have the brightest things. They have the uh, the most cost to uh, performance, best in stuff in the world, and and they're doing every kind of fancy thing, right? So the best thing for us, I think, is we default to thinking about what do our users need? Uh, because that is what is driving the platform at the end. And so for us, if a user says, I want to figure out something that I want to put you know, wheels on the moon and find me a wheel designer that uh, can put this thing and produce this for me and then put it on the moon, for us, the idea is let's go find them because that's what the demand side wants at the end, right? So, and that's the clear, um, metric for suppliers to know that there is evidence that mm. we can provide mm -hmm. them those opportunities as well. Because right. at the end of the day, um, we are not doing any kind of, you know, dream selling to suppliers mm -hmm. that they should be on our platform because somebody for us, actually you know, the, asked for it. Yeah. And then, you know, right. for every supplier out there and every customer that we have, we've always given them leads before charging them, mm. right? Because we've always told them, you know, here's an opportunity that you would have got, uh, we would have never got without us. So you want to get more of these kinds of opportunities, come join us, right? So we've actually given them evidence beforehand, before even before they pay us at the end. So, and that's that makes the sales process super easy because they know the result ahead of time and they're not buying a, a dream. They're, I'm not going to be selling them a dream that they will get a $100 million sale, uh, you know, because they pay us, a uh, thousand bucks, right? It, yeah. It's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> the lottery ticket. But, <laughs> but I like that. So what the, what I'm hearing then, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you don't want every supplier under the sun to be included in the database. You want the ones that are asked for, of the types of companies that are asked for, the solutions that are asked for, and then you'll go out and find uh, some somebody who's a match. Um, we, we covered earlier that you don't want to waste time on uh, on partnership announcements that don't actually have any value. But folks, that doesn't mean Narian's a, a, not a nice guy. He's been super helpful to me, for example. Uh, so he does believe in relationships. Uh, who who do you want to hear from? Well, and what's a good way to uh, to reach out to you? 
I mean, anybody who is looking for parts, components, mm. suppliers, uh, I mean, I'm generally talking to anybody out there, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we can always be helpful and be as helpful as we can as individuals, but it, when it comes to organizations and, and companies and, you know, institutions, our thoughts may be very different uh, and our decisions may be very different as well, right? So at an individual level, I'm happy to connect with anybody uh, out there and then uh, help in any aspect uh, that they want to get help from. So uh, please write to me on narayan at satsearch.com and I'm happy to answer you on any of these uh, matters that you are interested in. Or if you're a supplier, you can you know list yourself on our platform. If you're a buyer, you can go search our platform and request for anything that is out there. So I think it's uh, uh, very simple uh, at the end. And, and to your kind of note on um, suppliers, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we're still, I think, very, very, very far from seeing a global supply chain for the space industry out there, because I think people are still, you know, we're, I feel like, although we've done a few things in the last few years, it feels like we're just starting out, you know, you're, you're just like starting the engines and you're kind of getting there, right? So, and this is like the most exciting time for us because today the engines are warm and they're producing this thrust and the question is how big can this rocket get at the end and so this is the most exciting time for us in that sense and um and so it's getting easier and easier to to tell suppliers because convincing the first three or four suppliers is the most difficult part of all of this but then convincing the 50th supplier is much easier than convincing the fifth supplier right mm -hmm. so we've done like the hard yards over the course of some years now it's a question of, okay, how can we make this bigger and how can we get people to pay us 10 times more or hundred times more uh, and get hundred times more people to all pay us at the same time. Right? Those are the kind of problems that we are kind of solving internally at the end. And that's really, really exciting because I know that um, at least for the next couple of years, even at the current position, um, we still have a company. We still have enough uh, customers to survive and you know uh, to maintain the business and everything else. So it gives us that insurance that uh, we can build something big, right? So this is where for us, it's really, really, really exciting. And then, you know, the pandemic is, is getting to an end. And then we see, you know, the US as one of the biggest markets we haven't really, you know, exploited mm -hmm. as a part of our platform. And that's something that we'll do in the coming years. And anybody who's interested uh, in working with us in doing that, you know, please feel free to reach out. And again, Jason, uh, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to the podcast. Uh, uh, I've, again, as I said, I've learned uh, quite a lot out there. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I look forward to you know, meeting you in person, hopefully, right. after all of this. Yeah. You know. All right, Narian. Narian Prasad from SatSearch. Uh, I'll, I'll have a link in the description below. You can go there, check it out. Um, and I'm sure you can connect with uh, Narian on LinkedIn as well, though he did drop his email address too. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into today's show. I hope you got a lot of value out of it. The perspective shift is very, very impactful when you make it. So if you're struggling to adopt that commercial business owner mindset, I have a founder workshop. It's a startup founder workshop. It's geared towards space and defense founders who want to start off right rather than creating something and then going, oh no, <laughs> we have to totally change direction here and make the thing 
three feet shorter and uh, you know have it put on two more arms getting it done right the first time having the vision of what you need to build to have a properly operating commercial business this is very different from DOD and grant funding NIAC awards things like that so if you want to find out how the other side lives and that is what the space industry professes to be doing trying to get its commercial uh, sector in gear then you need this and so I show you it's a seven-hour program that sounds like a lot but it's recorded so you can you know take it in and in bite-sized chunks at whatever pace you want there's some worksheets that will change your perspective and look it's not just me uh, Narian, who, who uh, was my guest today, actually spoke at that event. Uh, I had two venture capitalists. I could have asked more, but I brought on the two that I believed had the most, uh, the strongest perspectives, right? Michael Mealing and Simon Drake, uh, to give their perspective on what it takes to build a commercial business and what it really takes to get venture capital funding, too. A lot of space startup founders with this engineering mindset want to build a prototype and then they go shopping around this venture capital pitch deck from VC to VC and guess what? VC claps them on the back, shakes their hand, gives them a big smile, says, hey, I love your idea, but there's no customer. And because there's no customer, no proven business model, they will never fund you. And unfortunately, I've watched for two years as space startup founders with that engineering mindset have twiddled and twiddled and twiddled you know, their, their VC pitch deck, they've changed it a little bit, and it's the equivalent of moving deck chairs around on the Titanic, folks. You know, it pains me to say that, but it's true. It ain't going to change nothing until you get a customer. And so if you want that vision of what a successful commercial business is made of, how what systems and processes, that's the essence of Cold Star technology, right? In installing these processes and systems that make commercial companies run perfectly well, smoothly, like a, 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 an engine, a machine, right? It brings in raw materials, it produces profit. That's what you want to do. Because as I said in the show, if you don't produce cash flow, your business is going to die, all right? And that may be a lesson you need to learn, but you could skip all that, <laughs> go directly to go, collect the $200, get that venture capital workshop recording and start implementing what you find in there, Okay. It is, it is insanely valuable. I've priced it at a level that everyone should be able to afford. If you say you're in the space business, you are able to afford this thing. It's a tax-deductible training expense. Take your receipt to your accountant. They'll figure out how to write it off for you as easy as pie. And it'll reduce your taxes payable. All right, but more valuable than that, you'll be able to refer to this thing for years to come. Every time you create a new business, every time you want to create a new business unit or product line or something like that, you refer to this thing and it will show you, it will remind you, it will get your people, you can show your people this thing, right? Into the right mindset of, all right, we're not just here to build cool stuff. That's great. But if there's no customer for it, and we don't have the vision of how to create that machine that brings in sales materials and produces profit out the other side, then you're bound to fail. So let's avoid that. Get this. It's linked to in the description below. And man, it is the best thing that you could do for yourself. Thanks for listening.